Yesterday, we saw that the ultimate aim of God in all of creation and all of history and all of redemption is the exaltation and the communication of His glory. We saw it in Philippians 1, 9 to 11, and we saw it in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. And we saw that this is not megalomania because in exalting and communicating His glory, He is giving to us the one thing that will most deeply and permanently satisfy our souls. And therefore, the name of this self-exaltation is not megalomania, it is love. When, some, when someone gives you what will provide for you the fullest and longest happiness, like forever, that's called love, especially when it cost him the life of his son to do it. And then we saw that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him from chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It is my eager expectation and hope, Paul said, that I might not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I drew attention to the fact that when, when I die and experience Christ as gain, therefore I show Christ to be great. And He's magnified in my experiencing Him as gain. So now we've come today to verse 25, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, and we're going to follow Paul's thinking from verse 25 all the way through chapter 2, and the question today becomes this, what kind of life magnifies Christ by expressing our satisfaction in Him. And the answer of verse 27 he's going to give is a life that is worthy of the gospel. And then we're going to ask, well, what, what is a life worthy of the gospel? And the answer in verse 27 and 28 is going to be a life of Unified love in the cause of the gospel, unified love, and a life of fearlessness before our adversaries. And then we're going to ask, what are the roots of this unity in love and this fearlessness? And that'll take us all the way through chapter 2, and he, he winds up giving four examples of lives that are lived this way 
namely Jesus, himself, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. That's the way the chapter is structured. So that's, that's where we're going. Let's start at verse 25. Remember he said, whether I live or whether I die, I want to magnify Christ. I struggle. I don't, know wh- I don't know which one to choose. I want to die and be with Christ. I want to live for your sake, which I shall choose. I cannot tell. And then he comes here, verse 25. But convinced of this, that I know I will remain. He's going to stay alive for a while. I will remain and continue with you all. Why? Why is God going to leave Paul alive in ministry for a season? You should ask that about yourselves. Why do you have another season of life in front of you? And here's his answer. I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, or joy in faith. It's amazing. The Apostle Paul is alive for the joy of people. That's why he lives. That's his meaning, his existence. I exist to create joy. So that, verse 26, what's that joy going to do? So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory or boast in Christ Jesus. So the the upsurge of the joy of faith in Christ is an exaltation in, a a boasting in Jesus. And, And that's what it meant then for him to magnify Christ in his life. So, he exists, he stays on the earth in order that they might have joy. My goal in life, in staying on the earth, is your joy of faith. So, as you you trust in Christ, there is a savoring of Christ, a tasting, a delighting in, a satisfaction in Christ, which is at the very essence of what faith is. I don't think there is such a thing as saving faith without that. If somebody says, I believe in Jesus Christ savingly and he doesn't taste good to me, that's a lie. You don't. So he hasn't left behind, in verse 25, 26, he hasn't left behind the theme of verses 20 and 21. That was all about magnifying Christ by counting Christ as gain, supremely satisfying in his death, and now it's all about the joy of people in Christ and Christ being magnified, that's why he's, he's here. Now, here's the problem. 
if we put all of our focus on the inner experience of satisfaction in Jesus, Jesus has become my supreme treasure, and I experience that treasuring in here. Nobody can see that except God. And God delights to see it, that's for sure. But God did not create the material universe in order for the glorification of God to be invisible in people's souls with no visible, lived out manifestation of his worth. I mean, if he wanted that, he would have just created souls, not bodies, not earth, food, action, movement in the world, relationships, society. He wouldn't have created any of that, just, just bodiless spirits, all totally satisfied in him. He did not do it that way. And so, Paul now moves onward in verse 27 to call this church to a manner of life, right? A manner of life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Are you with me? Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, the verb behind that let your manner of life be is an unusual verb. The noun form is used over in chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, our citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship. Palituma. And the verb of that citizenship in heaven is used here in verse 27. So it's very hard to bring that out. I don't know how your language does it. But the idea is when he says, let your manner of life be, he means live as citizens of the kingdom, the citizens of heaven. You, you know who the real refugees are in Europe? You. This is totally right. Syrian refugees, Iraqi refugees, Afghan refugees, they belong here on the earth. You don't. You're the real refugees. Christians in America are refugees in America. We don't know that, but we are. We ought to know it. We're learning it slowly. And it's high time that we learn it, that we are aliens in America. I mean, Americans are having a very jolting awakening as we become Europeanized culturally. <laughs> and all of your sins come to us. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's good for us. I mean, it's good for the church to realize to be an American is not to be a Christian. Good grief. So these days are sifting days, winnowing days, purging days as 
Christians all over the world begin to recognize we are refugees, aliens, exiles, sojourners. That's the meaning of the verb in verse 27. Live, let your manner of life in sync with the kingdom where your king is. Show here worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? What does worthy of the gospel mean? I, I would love for us all to share how our languages do this because worthy of the gospel in English is very vulnerable to misunderstanding. It could sound like, okay, I'm supposed to be worthy of the gospel. I will now try to live a life that makes me deserve the gospel. Deserve. Sounds like deserve. That's not what it means. <laughs> I, I will now live a life until I get enough worth so that I deserve the gospel. Well, that's crazy. That is not what worthy of the gospel means. Well, what does it mean then? It, it means just, just the reverse. You live in such a way in in harmony with your kingdom, which is not earth, you, you live in such a way that you sow the worth of the gospel, not your worth. That's what worthy, living worthy of the gospel means living in such a way as to call attention to the worth of the gospel, not calling attention to your worth. That's backward. Even though in English the phrase sort of sounds like I'm the one who has worth. That's not what it means. I am living in a way that is fitting or suitable because of the infinite value of the gospel to me. My treasure is in the gospel. My treasure is in Christ. My treasure is in my homeland, which is not planet Earth. It's where Jesus is. So living worthy of the gospel means treasuring the gospel and treasuring Christ and treasuring the cross of Christ and treasuring forgiveness of sins and treasuring the hope of eternal life in such a way that my life begins to look like my treasure is not on this earth. My treasure is in the gospel. It's in Christ. It's in heaven. It's in the hope of being with Him someday. So I don't think Paul in verse 27 is saying anything different than what he said back in 25 and 26, where he said, I am working for your joy. I am working so that you will exult in Christ Jesus in my presence among you. And here he's saying, I want you to live a life so that you call attention to the worth and the beauty and the value, the preciousness of the gospel. Okay, now he begins to get specific. If, if a life that magnifies Christ, verse 20, is now a life that reflects the worth of the gospel, verse 27, what are the specifics? What kind of life does this? And that's where he's going 
next. And he's going to show that, number one, it is a life of unity in love for the cause of the gospel. Unity in love for the cause of the gospel. And secondly, it's a life of fearlessness. No matter what the odds against you are in Europe, fearlessness of witness. Let's see that in verses 27 and 28. Let's read them together. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Now, here comes the unity part. In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's where I got unity. Verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So those are Paul's double description of a life worthy of the gospel. A life that is worthy of the gospel is a life of unity and love. And I'll tell you in a minute why I'm using the word love. We haven't seen the word love yet. We will see it in a moment. But I'm using it now. Unity in love in the cause of the gospel. Arm in arm, linking, moving together in the cause of the gospel is a beautiful display of the worth of the gospel. And you're fearless in it. So that's the double description of a life lived worthy of the gospel. And he calls this now in verse 28, a demonstration to the world of their destruction and your salvation. So this is now public. This is why I'm, I'm pressing into something visible, because Paul is doing that. So look at verse 28. This, what's this? What does this refer to? The unified, fearless, linking arms, for the sake of the gospel. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and your salvation and that from God. That's really, really important. So your unity in love and your fearlessness is now a demonstration to the world that they're damned and you're saved unless they get on board. And that demonstration, it says at the end of verse 28, is from God. What does that mean? Verse 29 starts with the word Four, and it's going to explain now why this fearlessness and this unity are from God. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you. 
By whom? God. It has been freely granted to you. Give it. This is a gift now. It has been granted to you what? What has been granted to you? That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. So there's faith. Unity in the faith. Joy of faith. Your faith is a gift of God. It has been granted to you that you should believe, but also suffer. So, the faith in which we have unity and the suffering in which we have fearlessness are both from God, which is what it says at the end of verse 27. So this sign, unified, loving, partnership in the gospel, and fearless standing in the face of suffering are a demonstration to the world that they're wrong and you're right in the gospel. And all of that is from God. And if you step back and say, Oh, this is where we started yesterday. God is all about creating demonstrations of the worth of God. God has brought the suffering. God has created the faith. God is all about creating among you and your ministries demonstrations to the world of his supreme value. What a great place to be. We're we're not doing this ministry. God is doing this ministry. You can rest. Of course you work your head off. (laughs) We're going to see that in chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work producing this amazing demonstration of the world's error and your truth. So God gives the faith, God gives the suffering. Now what does he do? Now he's going to go down deeper into the roots of this unity of love and this fearlessness. Where does it come from? What are the roots of it? And that's where we're going now into chapter chapter 2. I wish we could take every verse and unpack it, but let's go to verse 2 of chapter 2. You'll see immediately, he's right back on the theme of unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. There's the word love that I'm going to pick up on. In full accord and of one mind. You cannot miss it, right? Four times. Four times, he says, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Only now he adds the word love. That's why I've been using the phrase unity of love in the cause of the gospel. So the sign that the world sees 
The demonstration that the world sees that is worthy of the gospel is Christians united in love. We should stop and think about this for a minute because Europe or any other place is not impressed with organizational Christian unity. They're just not. I mean, who cares that you could have an organization? I mean, go create an organization called European Unified Christianity. And then they speak for Christians on refugee situation and everything. And you got this voice, you got this big office. Where would you put it? Brussels or I don't know, where would you put it? Who cares? I don't care. Why would the world care? Zillions of people all over the world create organizations that speak for people. That's not impressive. I'll tell you what's impressive is when people love each other, when they die for each other, when they lay down their lives for each other. You know, Francis Schaeffer, right at the end of his life, contemplated the, the denominational divisions in the church. He did not um, criticize the church that there were Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Pentecostals. He, he did not. He said, this is a, he called it, a golden opportunity to throw over the fences, not hate bombs, but love bombs. That's the way he talked. He said, what the world, the world doesn't mind if you're called a Baptist or a Presbyterian. They're not saying, oh, why is that? They want to know how do you treat each other. They want to know, do they lay down their lives for each other? Do they, do they care about each other? Do they bear each other's burdens? The world is aching for love, not organizational oneness. I mean, nobody cares about organizational oneness. Everybody cares, is there somebody who could love me? Is there, is there a community where if I were a part of it, they would care for me no matter what? That's the sign. That's the sign. If the world sees a community, whatever the labels are, if the world, if the world sees a, a community that is loving each other at great cost. This is where fearlessness comes in, right? Fearlessness comes in. You put these two things together. This is a, a community of love, and they're not afraid of anything. <laughs> there must be some reality there. So I think that little phrase, same love, is a tip-off that the unity he's talking about here is not, at least not essentially or mainly a big building, a big group of officers, a big congress. I mean, really, the world doesn't care. And this text talks as though the world might see reality. 
So what are these roots? The roots of unity and the roots of fearlessness. And there are three of them mentioned in verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, second chapter of Philippians. Do nothing, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Stop. Root number one, death to selfishness, death to conceit, new birth of humility. That's root number one. Root number two, at the end of verse three, count others more significant than ourselves. Root number three, verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Those three roots give rise to fearless unity in love. And the world takes note. Let's take these one at a time here. First, there's this amazing miracle of John Piper's death to selfishness. It's the most amazing miracle in the world is when a human being ceases to be selfish and becomes humble. And then growing in the soil of that humility is this capacity to count others more significant than yourself. Come back to that. And then growing out of that, reckoning others more significant than yourself is a life devoted to the interests of others and not just your own interests. That's the Christian life. That's the demonstration to the world of fearless unity in love. Let's just look at these a little more detail. And I'm going to go backward. I'm going I'm to start at the top the highest root, and go down to the bottom. So humility and death to, to selfishness is down here. Counting others more significant than yourselves is here. And up here is a life devoted to the interests of others. So let's start there and work our way, work our way down. So verse, I'm, I'm at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, the translation there, is uses the word interests. I don't know if that's a good translation. There, there's no word in the Greek here. It's just it's just blank. It's just blank. Let each of you look not only to his own, but also to the that of others. Well, you fill in the blank. And it translates it interests, which is the word interest in English has a range of meanings from the most superficial, oh, I'm interested in that, to like bank interest. I'm really interested in that. But it's just blank, so let's fill it up like this. 
Um, Let each of you look not only to his own financial affairs. Let each of you look not only to his own property. Let each of you look not only to his own family. That's a big deal in missions today. Let each of you look not only to his own health. Let each of you look not only to his own reputation. Let each of you look not only to his own education. Let each of you look not only to his own success. Let each of you look not only to his own happiness. Let each of you look not only to his own salvation. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fill in the blank. Whatever you're concerned about, what you, what you want to be happening in your life that's good, he's saying, don't just devote yourself to that. Rather, let's just turn it around. Don't just think about that. Don't just desire that. Don't just strategize about it. Don't just work toward it. Rather, think and desire and strategize and work toward the financial well-being of others. Toward the property of others being preserved. Towards the well, whole family life of others, not just your own toward the health of others, refugees, towards the reputation of others. Are you, are you concerned about the reputation of, of her and him, the people around you? Are concerned about their reputation, wanting to preserve their reputation, work for their reputation, work for their, their education, work for their success, work for their happiness, work for their salvation. A little quiz. What words of Jesus are being expressed there? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You love yourself. Oh, yes, you do. Totally. You eat. Why? Because you love yourself. That's why you eat, you sleep. You have sex. You don't walk out in front of trains. You love your life. Yes, you do. And Jesus says, now take all of that passion to stay alive and passion to be healthy and passion to have a home and passion to have relationships. All of that stuff you want and make that the measure of your investment in other people. That's a radical commitment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself is what Paul is talking about here when he says, don't just take thought for your own things. Take thought for the things of others. If the world saw a church doing that, on the ground, at the local level, as well as in some macro efforts like refugee care, it would take note Dads, if you're dog tired, you use that phrase, dog tired? If you're very tired <laughs> at the end of the day and you're sitting on the sofa, the couch at home and just can hardly move and the little child runs up and says, Daddy, can we play? 
don't just think about how tired you are. I'm paraphrasing verse 4. Don't just think about how tired you are. Think about that child's interest, that child's needs. And then in gospel-shaped, Christ-dependent, spirit-empowered resolution, get up from the couch and get down on the floor and play. He doesn't care. She doesn't care if you're tired. Just play with me. I don't think you can do marriage. I don't think you can do parenting. I don't think you can do ministry. I don't think you can do the Christian life without this root of fearless unity. And the first root at the top is a life devoted to the interests of others. Second root, let's go down a step. Where does that come from? Verse 3. Count others more significant than yourselves. This is so important and so impossible for the natural man. I remember I grew up reading the King James authorized version in English, which translates this, count others better than yourselves. (laughs) And I remember reading that as a 15-year-old, 15 years old, and thinking, I don't get that. Because my sister can read a whole novel in one night. And I can't read 10 pages in one night. There's no way she could count me better. Or my sister was failing algebra. I was making an A in math. How am I going to count her better? She's not better. I'm better. That's not what this text is about, is it? I mean, the English of the ESV says, count others more significant than yourselves. Here's here's the meaning. As you look at people, you stop assessing whether they deserve your ministry. You stop that. And you count them as deserving it. You count them. You regard them that way. This is an act of spiritual will by which you now look at the world totally differently than you looked at it before you were Christian. You now do not say, you are worthy of my service. You are not worthy of my service. And you're worthy and you're not worthy. So I'll devote myself to the people who are worthy of my service because I see in them worth. That's that's not what it means. It means Count, count, regard. Regard them. This is horizontal justification. I'll let you think that out. We are counted by Christ. Counted righteous. We're not righteous. 
We're counted righteous because of Christ. And now in the same spiritual dynamic, you look at people and you count them worthy. I'll die for you. If they, why will you die for me? You do not say, because you are so valuable. I think a lot of you might give that answer. That's not the way Paul's thinking here. They're not worthy of being died for in themselves. You are counting them as worthy of being, of dying for. And so this, this miracle of counting others more significant than ourselves, that is amazing. And where does it come from? Root, now we're at the bottom here. The third level of the, the roots of fearless unity in love. And the answer is, your selfishness has died. It was crucified. And humility or lowliness has come into being. Verse 3, in humility, in humility, in lowliness, count others more significant than yourselves. That's where it comes from. Paul said, do you remember this phrase from Romans 1.14? I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and foolish. Why is that significant? I am under, so you, you would say, living whatever country you live in, I am under obligation. That is, I owe, I owe ministry, service, and sacrifice to the unbelievers in this country. That's the Humility talks that way. Selfishness says, you owe me. You owe me. Selfishness is an entitlement mentality. The government owes me. My wife owes me. My kids owe me. My neighbors owe me. Give me, give me, give me. You owe me. That's, that's arrogance. Humility says, I owe you my life. Why? <laughs> Where does that come from? Why does Paul consider himself a debtor to everybody? And you, you know why. Because Christ loved you, died for you, forgave you, accepted you, justified you, and welcomed you into eternal life when he owed you nothing. <laughs> this is the gospel. He owes you nothing and gives you everything at the cost of his life. That's where it comes from. That's why you look at the world and say, you don't know me. I owe you my life. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let's step back and put the pieces, put the pieces together and then look at these, these uh, examples. Perhaps not. I'm just looking at the clock. So the picture begins. Death of selfishness. Awakening by new birth of humility. 
that gives rise to counting others more significant than yourselves. That creates a life devoted to living for the, for the interests, the needs of others. And that becomes a unified, loving, spearheading work of the gospel, fearless, not afraid of anything, and that becomes a demonstration that Christ is real and valuable in your life. That's the way it works. And then he gives these, these four examples. Jesus, in verses 5 to 9, He came down, did not regard unity or equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So easy to see how Jesus becomes a model of what we've been talking about. That's why Paul gives him. Verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2 are Jesus modeling humility, counting others more significant than himself, and living for the interests of others at the cost of his life. And Paul is saying, be that way. Join Jesus. Be united to Jesus. And then he gives himself as an example in verses 17 and 18. I am going to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, Paul says, if, if it costs me my life to minister to you, I'm glad. That's what the world is looking for. I mean, have you ever seen a person like that? They suffer every inconvenience and even the loss of their life for the people that don't deserve it. And when it happens, they say, I'm glad. If the world were to see that, it'd see God. And then Timothy is given as an example in verses 19 to 22. And Timothy is given here as the most literal example because of the words used. I hope in the Lord Jesus, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy as, uh, to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, genuinely concerned for your interests, your welfare, your interests, not just his own, for they all seek their own interests. You see what he's doing? He's picking exactly up on the language of verse 4 to illustrate Timothy as a model of what he's trying to bring about in the Philippian church and I'm trying to bring about among you. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how he served. So there's Timothy. And then the last one is Epaphroditus. Oh, I love this. I love this man because he's, I want to be like him. I have thought, this is verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger, your minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. <laughs> he was distressed because they heard that he was ill. Well, I would want people to know I'm ill. I, I, if, if I get sick and I'm suffering for you, I want you to know I'm suffering for you so you would make much of me. That's, 
That's the old man. And Epaphroditus, when he hears that they heard that he was ill, he's worried that they're worried. What a heart. What an other-oriented heart. So it's just so clear what Paul is doing in chapter 2 with these. Jesus is an example. Paul is an example. Timothy is an example. Epaphroditus is an example. And they're all examples of humility that counts others more significant than themselves, who lead lives that are devoted to the interests of others, who then appear to the world as unified and fearless for the cause of the gospel. And that is a life lived worthy of the gospel. That is, calls attention to the infinite worth of the gospel, the infinite worth of Christ. And that's the point of the book. That's the point of verse 20 and 21. Let's pray. Father, please, go with us through this day, killing our pride, killing our selfishness, and creating this miracle of humility, this miracle of counting others more significant than ourselves, and this miracle of a life lived for the interests of others and this miracle of unified love and fearlessness in the face of opposition so that the gospel will look beautiful to the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.